Today's episode is brought to you by the Buick Tour X. The holidays are coming up. If you're lucky, that means some time away from the office for a vacation. Magical word. My favorite word. And to get to that vacation, it probably means you're going to have to spend some time slash a lot of time in a car. So you might as well be happy with the car that you are in. So we're going to tell you about the Buick Torex because it works for whatever type of adventure you're taking. Whether you're headed somewhere warm and sunny and you need a moonroof. Or if you're headed skiing and you need a car that can carry a ton of gear. By the way, one of us can fit into the back and you can take us with you. Um, (laughs) Or if you're going nowhere and you just need a place to hide from your relatives and listen to great podcasts like this one. So the Buick Tour X is great for really any kind of holiday adventure. And uh, speaking of the podcast that you can listen to, let's get into ours. Cheers. Wait, wait. Before we cheer, I have to ask you girls a question. Will you sell me 33% of your business? For how much? As much as you want. You name the price and we'll work down from there. Name a price. We'll be working down from there. Let's toast. (laughs) I'm Danielle Weisberg. And I am Carly Zakin. And we are the co-founders of The Skip. You're listening to our podcast, Skinned from the Couch, where we talk to other female entrepreneurs about what it takes to get to the top and then what it's like along the way. We're talking bad advice, the really low days, management mistakes, everything that goes into the real stuff. No BS. We started the skin from a couch, so what better place to talk it out than where it all began? We are on a couch right now. So we are very, very excited to welcome Barbara Corcoran to the couch. You know her as one of the sharks on Shark Tank, but investing in new businesses is just one part of her story. After college, Barbara took a job as a teacher, but she quit after just one year to be a waitress. A little while after that, she borrowed $1,000 from her old boyfriend to start a real estate business and has turned it into a multi-million dollar empire. She sold it in the early 2000s and has been using her money to help other entrepreneurs get their ideas off the ground at Shark Tank and on her own podcast, Business Unusual. Check it out. Barbara, Barbara, welcome to the couch. I'm tripping over my words because I'm so excited to have you here. Happy to be here, but just for the record, I'm not on your couch. I'm on a chair. Uh, thank you for fact-checking. <laughs> you are completely right. So your story is uh, one of my all-time favorites, and I just I want you to tell it. How did you become Barbara Corcoran? Walk us through that $1,000 and what happened. Well, I got a lucky loan. I was at a waitress counter, and I met my first boyfriend. I was 23 years old. I had already had 22 jobs by the time I was 23. This was my 22nd job. And uh, I started dating him, and he offered to pay for a week at the Barbizon Hotel for Women in New York. He said, a girl like you belongs in the big city, which was right across the river from my little town in New Jersey, but I had never been there. And off I went. My parents were very upset. They thought I was going to become a prostitute. (laughs) I thought they were exaggerating a little bit there. Uh, But anyway, one week in New York City, I just had a job the third day. I quit my job as a waitress. I started answering phones for a development company. Good morning, Jafuni Brothers. Good morning, Jafuni Brothers, a million times a day. And then about a year later, my boyfriend said, you'd be great as a real estate agent. Why don't I give you $1,000? I'll take 51%. You take 49%. We'll start a brokerage firm. And that was the beginning of the Corcoran Simone Company with an accent on the Simone to make it look fancy. (laughs) I want to go through those 22 jobs by the time you were 23. 
Well, I don't know if I can name all of them. What Pro- stands out? Well, I can tell you my best job and my worst job. I'll start with the worst. I was a nurse's aide to an aide somehow, two levels down, where I posted temperature charts. But I was dyslexic, never oh. did math, couldn't add a thing up. And I constantly worried that I was uh, reversing the numbers on the cancer ward. So uh, every time a cancer patient died, I thought I had killed them. So I kept that job for only a month. That was my shortest term job. I hated every minute. I didn't sleep a wink for the month, as I recall. Probably my best jobs, maybe five of them in total, maybe even more. I, I actually did a count once. That's how I knew they're 22 were waitressing jobs. I loved it because of the independence. In a real way, it's a mini version of sales. You know, you get commissions by the way of tips. Uh, If you hustle people, make them smile, they come back to your counter. So that was probably my all-time favorite job. My most cheapskate job was working as a sales clerk at a small family-run department store in New Jersey. And uh, I was asked to label about a 1,000 boxes of uh, men's socks up in a hot attic. I did it, and I had to put black or gray on each box. And I did that, and I came down like six hours later and said, the job's complete. And the next day, my boss, the cheapskate, Milton, he said, uh, you misspelled gray. Go up and do it again. I spelled gray, G-R-A-Y. But it wasn't until a year later I found out somehow in a dictionary, somehow I was looking at the word gray. It's spelled two ways. It is. Yes. I was going to yeah. say, you should tell Milton what he can uh, do. About- <laughs> I, well, I told Milton that morning what he could do with the job and moved on to my next job, which, <laughs> which I think was dropping off newspapers for the Bergen Record, you know, one of those dispatch writers. That was a pretty good job. And I, in a way, again, I was my own boss. I just ne- needed to know the stops. Okay, flash forward, you now are in business. You are in the real estate industry. Hallelujah. I'm sure you were very thankful to that boyfriend for the first $1,000. Very much, very much. But he was not Prince Charming. So walk us through how Corcoran Simone became Happen. Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. became Corcoran. Well, actually, he was Prince Charming. He was 10 years older than me. He had jet black hair, dark navy, navy blue aviator shades. He was sexy as could be. And he was my first boyfriend. His three kids moved in with us, which I didn't know he had kids till after I moved in with him. Surprise! And uh, I was working in partnership with him for about seven years or so. And one night he came home while I was making dinner and said he was going to marry my secretary. I thought it was a bad joke, really. But when I realized it wasn't, he said, calm down, take your time moving out. I told him, I don't think I said anything. I think I moved out in about a minute, grabbed my toothbrush, I was out of there. Um, but that was the beginning of the end in a way because by this point I had a business that was not huge, but I, I employed 18, 19 agents working for us on commission basis. We had a real receptionist. Well, we paid her on salary. I was pulling a salary every week, not much, but something every week, and I felt like on top of my game. And the whole world came tumbling down because he had found me in the diner. He had told me I could go to New York. He had told me I could be somebody, and he was really, to a large degree, a very much a partner in every way. And I was also mother to his kids, his three girls. So it was really like having the rug ripped out from me. In hindsight, the best thing that ever happened. But those kinds of things you don't realize are the best things that ever happened until a year or two or 10 years later. Yeah. How did you guys break up that oh, business? Oh, that was easy. Then... I am efficient. I stayed with that partnership for about a year, uh, crestfallen. I remember feeling ashamed of myself, mostly because my old boyfriend and his new wife, my old secretary, took over my office with him. And I used to look through the glass like, oh, God, they're inside giggling and so happy, and I'm all by myself. You know, oh, poor me, for about a minute. But then a year later, I don't know what snapped. I just walked in and said, Ray, we're ending the business today. We're going to chop this business in half, and here's how we're going to do it. He was surprised. 
I said, you pick the first salesperson, I'll pick the second. Actually, we had 14 because it came out seven and seven. And we chop, chop, chop. I said, I'll leave or you leave. You decide. He said, you leave. Okay. And I gathered my seven salespeople in the corner and I said, guess what? On Monday, we're going to a new office. We are? Where are we going? It's a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> because it was. But, you know, New York was different then. Uh, there were a lot of terrible neighborhoods and the, probably the worst neighborhood in New York was 42nd Street on the east side. But what was great about 42nd Street is I could hop down there by a cab pick out metal black desks on the sidewalk. There are lots of desk companies, lots of junk for sale. And the guys actually ran the desks up to 60th and 3rd Avenue and put them in place the same day. You couldn't do that today, right? right? And Ma Bell put in a phone that Saturday. You can't do that today. It was a conglomerate. And when my salespeople came in on Monday to the same office on the 11th floor versus Ray and Tina's 8th you floor. You were in the same building? I went right to the landlord. I was a good paying tenant. I asked, do you have anything else? Yes, three floors up. I loved being in that elevator and saying, good morning, Ray and Tina. <laughs> <laughs> and going up higher. I mean, these oh stupid things, God. right? I love that. Where is Wait, your, <laughs> that I I feel like I want to get drinks with you. Um, but let's have them now. There's oh no my rules God, about yes. drinking I know. on no, couches. We usually we have actually it in really here. would like it. We can certainly arrange for that. Let's take a quick break. We talked earlier about how we needed a winter vacation, and we do because we're very pale. But also, our social media feeds are filled with pictures of snow-covered cabins in the woods, and honestly, it just looks very cozy, and I'd like to be cozy. But in reality, it's not always easy to get there, those places where you take good pictures, because it's remote. Driving up a snow-covered mountain can be dangerous, depends on what you're driving. So that is why we are all about the Buick Tour X. It is a very intelligent all-wheel drive, and at the Skim, we love all things intelligent, so you will feel safe driving in any weather conditions. The Torx also has roof rails and crossbars to carry all of your cold weather gear, which is nice because I don't like carrying things. If you're more adventurous than us, that could be anything from skis to camping gear. And we'll just say that Danielle probably does not have camping gear. No, and I'm not great on skis, but I do appreciate the hands-free power trunk to make it easier to pack everything in. Honestly, try the Torx. It is perfect for you and wherever you are going. Now let's get back to the show. Okay, I'm picturing you in the elevator, right? And I love this image. But also, as you said, like he had been the one kind of pushing you, driving it forward. How did you get the confidence I'll to tell take you, that next step? The great lucky break I had when I left that Friday afternoon, right before I walked out of the office, he said, you know, Barbara, you'll never succeed without me. Mm-hmm. And he gave me an insurance policy. I'm telling you, I never, I never knew how uh, powerful my core was so those words were issued I knew in my heart that I would rather die than let him see me not succeed it was just like boom, brittle like you know my core was brittle and I have to tell you uh, through the bad times through the recessions when I was overextended growing too fast wondering how the hell I was going to get through uh, the truth is I thought of that expression so many times and it would kick another idea in my head and somehow it would help me get through I was not going to go down that was for sure yeah Where does your resilience come from? Um, I think I had a great practice at rejection as a a kid because I was such a a bad student. Because everything came so tough to me, I got used to being a loser, and I kind of got okay with it after a while. I didn't have any pressure from my family of, you know, 10 kids and a two-bedroom flat. I did not have pressure from my parents to be somebody. 
So I failed again and again on the one medium I knew, which was going to school every day from 8.30 to 3 o'clock. I was a loser. And so that actually became my forte later on in life because I'm used to that. You're, All right, so I'm going to fall on my head and be a loser and I'm not going to succeed. No problem. I'll just get back up. So I think that was a big piece that combined with the fact that I had an enormously powerful mother who was a wonderful role model. And she modeled getting ahead in life for all of us as a, as a female to my brothers and myself. When did you realize you were smart? Oh, that's probably not a good question because I know I'm smart in people ways. You know, I could judge people quicker than a wink and be fairly accurate. I knew I was well, no, I wouldn't even say I knew I was smart. That sounds like a, a like you are you aren't. I knew where I was smart soon enough. I knew where I was smart when my salespeople adored me. I knew I was valued when I could make quick judgments on my feet, street smart kind of thing, versus book smart kind of thing, vastly different, you know. And I knew I was smart when I could look back and see the progress I made. But I also learned to hire the people in the areas that I wasn't good at. And because of my accurate judgment of people, I hired the best people. How do you hire? Like how uh, do Mostly you... on instinct. I do believe you have to figure out what the basic core personality of the individual is right up front and make sure that the basic core of the job you're hiring for matches. I would hire someone with uh, who seemed like they were stuck in a rut and doing okay as a bookkeeper and make them a salesperson and they would explode. I would take a salesperson who was mediocre at sales, but they dressed well and their desk was meticulous. They had a color sense and make them the head of advertising, just on pure gut. But you have to really figure out if someone's by their very nature an expander or a container. I hired my partner, Esther Kaplan, who became my partner 1% a year for 10 years because everything about her was about containment, and she's the neatest person in the world, and she had a file cabinet in her purse, like actual partitions. When I saw that, I knew I wanted her as my partner because she was opposite to me. I was great at marketing, PR, uh, brainstorming, uh, getting people riled up, those leadership things she was great at, personnel, accounting, Finance. She was an opposite skill set. Um, I don't want to interrupt you, but your yeah. wine has arrived. Um, oh, don't worry. <laughs> really? I'm coming back. This, this is great. great. Cheers. Well, cheers. cheers. Wait, wait. Before we yeah. cheer, I have to ask you girls a question. Yeah. Will you sell me 33% of your business? For how much? As much as you want. You name the price and we'll work down from there. Name a price. A billion. <laughs> we'll be working down from there. Let's do it. <laughs> I don't have a billion. <laughs> the holidays are coming up, and my view on holiday gifting is what is the easiest thing to give with maximum emotional connection? That you can have a discount code to. <laughs> yes. There we go. That's our holiday giving thesis. And the way that I answer that is <laughs> framed pictures. So we are obsessed with FrameBridge over at Skim HQ and at our homes personally. And with the holidays fast approaching, it is literally the easiest way to get something framed. You just go to framebridge.com, you upload a photo or even mail it in. You can choose your frame style or get a recommendation from their team. They custom frame it and deliver it to you whenever you need it. Go to framebridge.com and use promo code SKIMM, S-K-I-M-M, and you'll save an additional 15% off your first order. Framebridge.com, promo code SKIMM, S-K-I-M-M, for 15% off. You're welcome. Happy holidays. 
I love the fact that you just asked us that question. And you make it seem like such a, a natural talking point. How do you negotiate? As an overall sense? I'm going to ask you about salary, but first I want to start with overall sense. Okay. How well, did you get to be good at it? Well, there's a couple of misnomers about negotiation that should be thrown out. I negotiated my entire life. I believe that almost everything we do is a negotiation. Right? Um, but most people think negotiation is about price. Okay. I learned it has nothing to do with price. It has everything to do with ego and timing. Right? So I negotiated thousands of deals through my top salespeople and my not-so-top salespeople. I negotiate for myself. I negotiate on Shark Tank. It's like breathing for me. I find it phenomenally interesting, and yet I have no interest in money or numbers. Now, why would that be? Because to me, I have my eye on the ball. The ball there is the ego of the two opposing parties. If you could slay that dragon, you're going to get a deal, no matter what you're trying to negotiate for. And the other is being very careful about your timing of when you come back and forth. I'll use that as an example. If I called you and you came right back and said, tomorrow, I said, you know, we're really interested. I will already start lowering my estimation of how much money you need. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but if you're smart enough to not return my call and come back the next day, Already in my mind, I'd be working up to a higher price of what the expectation is. So you've set the stage by your timing in that instance. So I want to turn it into like a tactical thing. Someone applies to work with you. Mm -hmm. You offer them a salary. Do you, and let's say they're not, not entry level, but like mid-level employee. Mm -hmm. Walk us through how they should negotiate. Walk us through where they should push back, like how to kind of read the negotiation. Well, first off, room. first off, the very beginning, you said I offer them a salary. I would not do that if there was an advertisement for it to try to bring people in or if it was a recommendation kind of position looking for recommendations, I would always put a range or simply put a salary commensurate with your talent. So I would never suggest a salary, as you, you don't. If you can possibly be the second person to name a number, you're in a better position. So I would say, what are you looking for? And then no matter what the person would say they're looking for, I would say immediately, can you take less? Because you don't know if the person's just naming a wild figure, seeing what they get away with, where that number is coming from. So the minute you say, can you take less, the reason people will answer you honestly right away, not later on when you act interested, is because they're afraid of losing the interview right there. Okay? Because if you say, no, I can't, you think, oh, I blew it. I could have. I should have said. So you'll get the honesty right on the front, front side. And so you take the negotiation from that basis. You don't name the price first, and you immediately attack the price that's being given. So how long do you think a candidate should say, let me think about it? How long should they take time to consider it? You mean if you offer them the position? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you made a job offer. Yeah. You played that game of you said, mm -hmm. how can you take less? They said only by X percent or by this amount. Mm -hmm. And you say this is our number. How long should they, how long should you wait to think about a job offer? Well, you should definitely not take it on the spot. You should give a wonderful compliment to the ego of the person who's doing the negotiation. That you'd love to work for them. It's not so much about the number now. Oh, you should pretend that way, right? Love to work for you. I, this is the company I've dreamt about my entire life. What's the name of it again? You know. And then you should say, I'd like to think about it. It would be okay if I think about it. And could I think about it till tomorrow? But when you get the job offer, and I have advised people who work for me, I hire a lot of young people and hope that they go out in their career and do something phenomenal, and most of them always do. And I've had advised them that when they get the job offer, always go back and ask for more. I've never seen anyone lose a job. You know, I've thought about it. I love the job. It's just that I wish I could get, you know, just 
maybe 4% more, whatever the number sounds lower, 4%, 4,000, whatever you hear sounds better. No one turns away a great person for up to 5% difference. But most people think there's another candidate in the wings. Do you believe in exploding job offers? Where, I don't know what that is. What is so that? that there's a, de- like a deadline like that if you don't take it in 24 hours, like there is no more job offer. A lot of tech companies, the bigger tech companies, do some of that. I think it's male arrogance. I'm sure they're male-run companies. I mean, I couldn't imagine doing that to an individual. How arrogant. I guess if they have 10 people for every one position. But you know what I say? I say the person you work for, the culture where you work, has more to do with happiness and success, certainly, than what you do in your job. And so that would be a red flag for me right away. Like, why would I want to work for those bastards? I mean, I would form a quick opinion on that, but maybe I'm a little tough. Are you asking for a job? Uh, no, I'm really care. This place. is stuff yeah. that we get advice all the time, mm-hmm. or we ask for advice all the time, and then mm-hmm. people ask us. So I want to like, yes. kind of pressure test it a little bit. With entry-level candidates, someone mm-hmm. just graduated school, they have no work experience. What are your thoughts on them negotiating? I don't think you're in a position to negotiate. What you're trying to do is get a toehold in some kind of business, but what I would suggest is that they be very careful who they work for. I think there are two things you get as at a starter position or the first few years you work, honestly, which is you could either opt for money or experience, but they never come together. And you're always better off for grabbing the lower paying job that gives you exposure and experience by far. And then the other major card is who you're directly reporting to. If you're working for a bastard who doesn't appreciate you and really isn't happy in their job or a Marriott, Marriott, whatever that word is of things, you're not going to get ahead in that job. It's as simple as that. You work for someone you respect and adore. It's a two-way street. They always respect and adore you back. It comes with the program, and you're going to get ahead. They're not going to be threatened. They're not going to be uh, cheap. It's You're going to have a happy job. Having a happy job brings out the best in every individual. And you can't have it with a lousy boss. You just can't. Here's a confession. I would say one of the more embarrassing things that's ever happened to me and Danielle is we were once attending an event and there was a red carpet that we got to walk down or thought we were getting to walk down. And we were walking down and we hear, clear the back. And then we looked at each other and realized we were the back. As in background. We were the background. And we weren't supposed to walk that red carpet. But you know who was and who was there? Ashley Graham. We couldn't be more excited to talk to you about Ashley Graham's new podcast, Pretty Big Deal. In it, she sits down with some of the boldest, most influential people in the world. Season one includes Gabrielle Union, Amy Schumer, Kim Kardashian West, Halima Aiden, Lily Singh. Uh, They're going to talk about everything from culture and beauty to business and self-worth. I'm excited. Ashley Graham is one of the funniest, most down-to-earth people that we've ever had the privilege of meeting. Or clearing the back. Or clearing the background for. We suggest subscribing now by searching for Pretty Big Deal wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch every episode on Ashley's YouTube channel. Again, that's Pretty Big Deal. Available to watch or listen to now. How do you build your network? Like, I'm going mm-hmm. back to you moving floors, starting out with these seven salespeople to mm-hmm. where you are today. I'm assuming that a network was really important, but how did you start to build it? You know, network is kind of a modern-day word. I did not have a network, but I needed to get one, and my network was called my salespeople. So, for example, I knew I needed fancy ladies working for me. I wasn't fancy. So how do I get the country club set? 
how did I get, when I walked through Bloomingdale's, which I regularly did, I did that every single weekend and listened to the foreign languages being uh, spoken, and they changed every three or four months. Why was that? Because I wanted to know who was moving into New York. And by asking the sales clerk, what language was that? Russian. What language was that? Taiwanese. <laughs> I learned who I had to hire, and I would put ads in the paper, Taiwanese speaking. Russian speaking, right? So I was always ahead of the curve and who I hired based on who was coming to New York, thanks to Bloomingdale's. They didn't charge me for that. And I never bought a damn thing there because I couldn't afford it. I built a powerful network because I had a flavor of the month. I had last year's flavor. I had socialites. I had poor kids. I had truck dr I had everything. But I made sure I had a variety because most of the real estate companies in its day were either high-end or poor-end. We were poor-end initially, but in short order, I made us an everything end. And then I publicized the high end because you need to have that to attract the superstars. What makes a good salesperson? Insecurity, number one. I always wanted someone who had something to prove. You know, if you get anyone with great natural sales talent and personality and they have nothing to prove, they'll get good. If you have someone who has the right connections, they have a head start. But get someone insecure with something to prove, like the dad who damned them to hell or the person who didn't do this right or whatever, you have extra fire in the belly. And that's really what who become the superstars. Most of my superstars, as talented as they were, making uh, three, four million dollars a year on a commission basis selling apartments in New York when my average salesman was making 44,000, how do you explain that away? I'll tell you what explains it away. They had something to prove. How do you consider yourself a salesperson? I'm a phenomenal salesperson. So what are you insecure about? Well, I'm insecure about my background. I still am. I mean, one of my great strengths as a grown-up, now that I'm all grown up, is I'm always very well prepared for anything. And I'm very well prepared. And you know how preparation counts in life. It really does. Because I was so bad at class, I never want to be called on ever again, even still to this day, ever again in my life where I don't have the answer. So I go into any situation with 10 answers when someone who really has earned the right to be in the same situation will go in thinking they know it. I never think I know it. So yes, my insecurity is probably my best asset. So over the last many years, few years, you found TV. <laughs> and you found a, a total different career. And actually, I don't know if you know this. I'm going I'm to assume you don't. We have mm -hmm. met many times before. I knew your face, but not here. No. No. Because well, I used to work at CNBC in my first job, and you used to be on CNBC all the time. Wow. And Good I was for the you. production assistant that would go book your cars and my pick gosh. you up in the green room. <laughs> and it was at the end of the day, so you had done a lot of hits, and I would, and you would take like 20 minutes of shut-eye so that you could re-prepare, and I would come in and have to wake you up to tell you that, like, now, okay, your, your break is over. It's time to go back on air. And what I always think about that is that I thought, it was like, you are one of the most hardworking people that I'd ever seen. Yeah. So it is very surreal for me to, to not book your car today, but to have you here and have a glass of wine with you. You could pay for my car. I have I'll no objection. You're very good. <laughs> but I think I want to talk about how, you, how you've how prioritized your time mm -hmm. and how you you are everywhere at once. And how have you been able to, to figure out what, you know, it's not about the money necessarily anymore. Maybe it is if you want to talk about that. But what is, what is the driver and how you make decisions at this point? You know, I'm not as good about prioritizing as I used to be, honestly, because I'm less hungry. And hunger has a way of putting pressure on your time. Not that I 
don't have enormous pressure on my time, but I don't feel like every judgment, every minute is going to make or break me because I've had a lot of success in my life. So probably now is not the best time to ask me that uh, because I've softened on prioritizing. Uh, and too often it turns into what I enjoy, which can lead to great success. But before that period of my life, uh, my priorities were very black and white. I would simply have a to-do list like everybody did. And I never really moved off the written to-do list because I don't do well and I don't remember things unless I write them down in script. But you have the to-do list, you look at it in the morning, you just go right through the list and you rate what's an A, B, and a C. A C are usually the things I really like to do. Write a lovely thank you letter to him. He was so nice. You know, um, buy flowers for the party on Friday night. Let me go right down the flower district. Okay, but the A's are clearly the urgencies that have either one of two things: either your kid's teacher that has to talk to you because she's not doing her homework. That's an A. Or an A would be something that would make the biggest chances of making the biggest change in the business. It's usually things you don't want to do, by the way. It's usually things that are the long distance runner things. Like, okay, pitch another show. I'm so tired from the one I'm on, why would I pitch a show? But can change your life. So after I'd get through the A's, which I always make a habit of doing first thing, I have to get through the A's before I get dessert. You know? It's just a habit. And then the B's are fairly important, but you're not gonna die if you don't do them. And then I do the same thing the next morning, not sophisticated but useful to me because it because too many things hit your to-do list and you really have to start off by thinking what's important, what's not. And, and I think rating somehow crystallizes things for people. What drives you now? Um, death, more than anything. I'm afraid of dying. Um, I'm trying to think of what I could get in before I die. Uh, that's fun, that's fruitful, that makes a difference in my life, other people's lives, my kids' lives. Um, I'm always fearful of dying. I've been running away from death since I turned 30. I don't know, it's a phobia. I probably should have a good shrink. Like, why are you afraid of dying? But I've been afraid of dying since I was 30. Like, oh my God, I'm 31. Oh my God, now I'm 34. Oh my God, my God, I hardly have time left. You know, I feel that way every single year, like I'm running out of time. So that motivates me. I mean, I don't want to get so short. I'm not a believer that I'm coming back as a, as a scorpion or a rabbit or anything like that. So I just want to jam it all in as much as I can. Earlier when we were talking, you said, when we were talking about Shark Tank, you said, lucky me. How mm. much of your success do you think is due to luck? Mm, probably more than half, not 80%, I'd say. I remember I got the luckiest break in the world in my entire life. I got born to two parents who loved me and a family that worked their ass off. How lucky with no expectation. That's a triple header. A mom, a dad, and no expectation, nothing to lose but going up. What could I have done wrong, really? Um, and then I got the lucky break of uh, Ramon sitting at my counter at the Fort Lee Diner. That's another lucky break. I got the lucky break of him leaving me and starting the Corcoran Group. I got the lucky break on Friday night, right before 9-11, signing my contract to sell the business. It wouldn't have been signed the next week. I have a son and a daughter that are healthy. I have a husband that drives me crazy, which gives me something to complain about. I mean, I've had... <laughs> I've had luck, luck, and more luck, and more luck all along the way. How do you feel then as a shark giving back some of that luck to rising entrepreneurs? It's very satisfying, but only if I make money. I'm not that nice. And it's not, because money in business is really the measurement stick of whether you are doing well as a business or not. So I've invested in over 70 businesses on Shark Tank. I probably have, I would say, more than half are successful. The others are not. But 
nothing's more depressing than working with an entrepreneur who should really be out getting himself a day job. Nothing's more exciting than working with an entrepreneur that the sky's the limit, they're dreaming big and they're gonna get there because they have the talent. So you have, I, I love giving back when I have talent to work with and when someone has a su successful business, as small as it might be, they're on the track. Do you tell the entrepreneur that should get a day job to get a day job? You know what, I probably will starting tomorrow. I hadn't really thought about that. I coerce them into closing their shop uh, because I can't get a tax write-off till they close their shop. <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> but uh, maybe a nicer way to do that is to say, I really think you should get a day job. I'll try that tomorrow. I have two calls tomorrow. I'll try that on is Friday. Is there anything in your life you don't negotiate? Like anything you take, like you're like, this is the price. No, the price. no. You know, I negotiate uh, on everything because I'm greedy to get the most out of every minute but I never negotiate on dollars and cents. I overpay for every piece of real estate I've ever bought. I'm always the highest bidder. I sometimes bid against myself. That's okay, I love it, and it all works out. I overpay for housekeeping charges, moving expenses. I'm surprised the electric company doesn't charge me extra because once you live in a good address in New York or once you have any notoriety, everybody gives you the penthouse price, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't care. I could afford it. I'm just like, get some money going around. But what I do care about is <laughs> negotiate on getting the most out of life. I mean, why would you waste anything and not get for yourself what you want? I think that is the best way to end. All right. Thank you. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot -M com. Two M's for a little something extra.